Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing with the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Studio spats, stump speeches, policy pledges, posturing, opinion polls and opinions on, well, just about everything, including whether the Prime Minister likes Marmite. We're truly into the general election campaign and there are still four weeks to go. So we're here to get beyond the politics to make sense of what's been going on. This week, we're taking a deeper dive into one of the most important issues of any general election campaign. How should the opposition parties develop policies which are ready to go the moment they win power, if they do? And why do so many of the policies unravel at first contact with government? We also catch up with Gavin Barwell, Theresa May's former chief of staff and a veteran of many election campaigns, and we talk to him about planning a campaign. And we take an in-depth look into the IFG's biggest ever report published this week with one of its authors, Graham Atkins. What has a decade of austerity really meant for our public services? I've got some of the IFG's key brains here to help me wrestle with this. Our Director of Research, Emma Norris, is making her debut on the podcast. Welcome, Emma. Thanks. Hi. You're planning our run-up to the election. Have things actually got quieter now the politicians have left Westminster? Well, you might think that, Bronwyn, but in some ways it's uh, it's easier to keep them all in one place where we can keep an eye <laughs> on them. And you've been keeping tabs on the party's policies. <laughs> you've got a little bit of background in policymaking. Did you ever think you'd see an arms race between the Conservatives and Labour on who could spend the most on public services? <laughs> Well, I think if it's a surprise to me, then civil servants will be falling over. I think after nine years of austerity and turnover in Whitehall, um, I'm not sure that civil servants remember how to spend money at this stage. And actually, there is a really serious point in that, which we might come back to. Joe Owen runs our Brexit programme. Joe, your mum came down from Mid Wales last night to have supper with you. Can you get through a family meal of, without talking about Brexit? If there's anything left after she's shown me the new animals that have arrived Aww. on the farm. <laughs> We've got a couple of new goats and unfortunately um, one of them's got foot rot, which oh, no. there's probably a Brexit metaphor that you could put in there. I'm just not clever enough to do it. But <laughs> No, there's a bit of a controversy about how to deal with foot rot, which we are not going to go, go into. No, stay away from that. <laughs> one of the things your team's been commenting on this week, that Britain has refused to nominate an EU commissioner. Does that matter? Yeah, I think it does. And I think it's easy to paint this as a kind of another bit of the Brexit saga with the European Commission playing hardball with the UK government who doesn't want to blink. Mm. But actually, you know, one of the arguments that our senior researcher Georgina Wright put forward is this is actually much more about the future of the EU and not creating precedents. If you create precedents in a big, complicated, rules-based organisation, they can come back to bite you. So we need to resist seeing this purely through the Brexit prism. So all this stuff happening really under cover of the election campaign. And completing the panel, we've got Kath Haddon, our historian, who went to the Political Studies Association Awards this week. Was the top prize for giving Britain a new constitution? They have not yet invented a prize that I seem on the cards to win this year, but maybe <laughs> next year, we can hope. Uh, we'll start lobbying them hard for something or other. Just incidentally, and I'm fishing here, do you find your own views on the British constitution changing? Uh, like every day, but <laughs> uh, it's such a sort of flexible, moving thing, it's difficult to you know stick to one position. Actually, I was at a seminar on the constitution yesterday and uh, somebody else there pointed out that you can't get two constitutional experts in the room and expect them to agree ever. Brilliant. Well, great to have you all here. We're now deep into the campaign, but we haven't seen any manifestos yet. There's every sign that Labour and the Conservatives, in fact, intend to publish these comparatively late. You could say that it's because it's a snap election, or you could say that they want to avoid scrutiny. So in place of detailed manifestos, we've had uh, pledges, huge spending announcements, and some flat-out contradictions even within parties. Kath, what stands out for you? 
I think, I mean, what's surprising to many people is how late in the campaign that manifestos actually come out. They focus on the pledges that they, uh, and, and, and a sort of campaign process, a grid where they want to make sure that the key issues are discussed in any particular week. So, you know, focusing on the NHS perhaps one week, they're moving on to talk about digital policy, mental health, whatever so it might be. we've got about six weeks of an election campaign and it's, it looks as if the, the, the manifestos are going to come out how late? Just a couple of weeks before yeah, the election? Probably even just a couple of weeks before the election. I mean, it's partly the internal workings of it. This Obviously, this election was, you know, uh, hurried into, so the parties have got to actually work out what their detailed lines are. But also, and we, you know, discussed this last week, we'll discuss this again today, they have to get them costed in as much as they have to make sure when they hit, uh, you know, the outside world, they don't get scrutinised in such a way that everyone jumps on them and says... This is complete rubbish. What are you mm. doing? And in fact, we've had a taste of that even before the manifestos. Yes, yeah. this week of them trying to cost you, cost each other's. Emma, what stood out for you? And um, this week, I'm not sure it's so much policy announcements, but um, what else is going on? So there's obviously been um, the terrible flooding, and you know that's not. This isn't the first time that we've seen something like that happen. In the 2010 election, there was the ash cloud. So you know, election campaigns are rather um, often disrupted by unpredictable events. And there was uh, 2017. We had the London, the London Bridge terror track attack. There was the Manchester yeah. Arena bombing, yeah. which kind of uh, campaigning was suspended, wasn't it? Yeah. And then you saw how that then reflected onto the actual campaign itself, where the last week or so was just, there was a lot of focus on police spending, for example. So, yeah, these unexpected events can have a knock-on impact. This is a winter campaign. We haven't yet had a big NHS uh, health crisis, um, but we know the government has been trying very hard to do something about the flu vaccine and that it's a difficult year for it. What what about what people are saying about the NHS? This has been one of the battlegrounds already. Well, they're all focusing on how much more they can spend. Um, And uh, at at the same time, and we'll get on to this later, the question is whether or not they're getting back to pre-2010 levels, let alone whether they're spending enough that you need at the moment. What's interesting is that they're all shying away from sort of talking about big reforms, certainly, because the NHS is perpetually going through massive reform programmes. So no one is saying, let's do a top-down reform. No, the Lib Dems started to talk about it, but then have reversed their position because I think they got quite a bit of backlash about doing any more big top-down reforms, yeah. But, you know, we've heard that before in 2010, we were told there isn't going to be a big top-down reorganisation of the NHS. Then the Health and Social Care Act was introduced, so... Just because people are saying there isn't going to be a reorganisation doesn't mean there the isn't temptation going to, to be fiddle one. when you get in power. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, more than fiddle. I mean, one of the big controversies of this week has been what Labour means exactly by saying that it would reduce the working week to thirty-two hours, and whether or not it could do it, and whether or not it could do it in the NHS. Yeah, this is. There was uh, some confusion, I think, between uh, the Shadow Health Secretary and uh, Jeremy Corbyn over exactly what the four-day week would mean and who Mm. it would apply to. And how long it would take to put it into practice as well. Whether overnight or 10 years. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. We had two two different views there. Let me just ask you, Joe, about um, Johnson's uh, promise to end Brexit groundhoggery, as he called it, and then on the Labour side, the uh, promise to get Brexit done in six months. What should we make of this? Yeah, every uh, well, both of the main parties are offering a way out of Brexit to end the pain for the people of endless front pages around customs arrangements. Um, the Conservatives' pledge is to get it all done and dusted by the end of 2020, so to leave the EU uh, in January. And then we're on to the next phase, which is much bigger, much more complicated. And rather than the 34 months we will have taken to do the withdrawal agreement, there would just be 11. But 
Boris Johnson has made a pledge to his party and to Nigel Farage uh, as part of this um, not quite alliance but semi-alliance yeah. with the Brexit party that he will not be extending this transition period next year and we will be leaving in December 2020 but um, I think the I, DUP may have views about how much they could trust certain pledges around Boris Johnson so they might it might not be completely done. I'll come to, to that in a second and Labour's idea of getting it all done in six months is that credible? Is it credible? I mean, it's possible if everything goes their way. It is an extremely tight timeline. Negotiating a new deal with Europe within three months, putting it to a referendum in six months. Six months is really the shortest you can and then, put in place. They'd have a to do referendum. some of this stuff in tandem because you know to get you've got to get the legislation through for the referendum, and that also means setting a question. So you'd have to set the question before what before, you know before knowing what the deal was. Yeah. And just finally, Nigel Farage, as you mentioned him, the Times ran a, 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 a editorial saying take the peerage get out of the race um what do you think we should make of the of the of the brexit party they've withdrawn a bit but not completely from this race exactly so they've helped uh, the conservatives with one of their kind of key worries which is losing seats to the liberal democrats and the brexit party taking away enough of their majority that they're at risk but the other big thing is the offensive interest of the conservative party trying to win new you mean seats. offensive in a military sense offensive in a military sense exactly um so it's where they're trying to get seats from labor exactly. and if the brexit party is still sitting there because that's the point is that boris johnson at the current time, yeah of course he needs to uh, hold on to the seats that he's got but actually if he wants a majority he's got to win seats and the, the most obvious ones he's got to win are from Labour and so if Brexit Party is still standing there how's that going to affect it? And as far as we know they still are in the sense that the Brexit candidates are intending to put in their applications to be Exactly candidates. and you know in some of those constituencies there's a big cultural barrier to voting Conservative so if there's an alternative like the Brexit Party that could spell trouble. Well, we'll see if the Conservatives are tempted to raise the price they're prepared to pay even further. No one, they haven't yet allocated that ambassadorship to Washington. But still yet, <laughs> yet have Lord Farage of, of, of Massachusetts Avenue. But we'll see. We'll come back to all these questions as the campaign unfolds. Let's take a closer look now at an area which really matters if government in this country is going to work well. That's the question of how political parties, when they're in opposition, prepare their policies so that they are, to borrow the Prime Minister's phrase, oven ready, ready to be whacked in the microwave the moment they get in office. He did get in trouble on Twitter for that phrase as he was talking at the same time about Gas Mark IV before finally admitting he wasn't very good at cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, no, I'm not going to quiz you about cooking, but uh, how, how should the opposition go about this? They've got limited resources, very limited access to the civil service, and uh, in Labour's case now they've been out of power for nine years. So how should they work up their policies? So I think in opposition, policymaking broadly falls into two camps. On the one hand, you've got your detailed, really long-term policy development. So for the issues that you know are going to be absolutely core in your manifesto, the things that you really want to deliver. And that will normally involve taking a team of policy advisors, probably working with academics and think tanks too, to really work up a policy over a number of years. So renationalisation is exactly the kind something of Something they've been talking about for a long time. Something they've been talking about for a long time that they're really serious about and that they're doing extensive policy development on in opposition. They're probably thinking through things like quite detailed implementation questions with experts. Um, you know, another example from Labour is the minimum wage back in 1997. They knew that was going to be a priority for them. They spent three years in total in opposition, building up 
that policy, working with everybody from the CBI to the unions to think about how to introduce it, and right down to details like the kind of machinery of government changes they needed. Of course, that shows one of the hazards of it. You put one of your best ideas out there and then the other party in government takes it. Indeed. Which, which the Conservatives have now have now done. So the other type of, um, of policymaking is your more kind of quick reactive on the hoof mm. policymaking, responding to events. Um, and, you know, that can sometimes backfire. Uh, take the Corbyn maximum wage cap idea during the 2017 campaign, announced um, at pretty short notice and then reversed in the space of four hours. And just uh, in a nutshell, what was that idea? Uh, so that was the idea that there would be a maximum amount that people in the UK could earn. Um, and and that didn't go down as well as they... They thought it might. It, given how quickly it was reversed, I think that's a fair. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's, that's it, it, it has disappeared. I think it's fair to say. This Ka- is, Kath, how, how does the civil service get involved? Well, the civil service obviously are thinking through what would happen if any of these parties get into government. So they have to obviously monitor all of the policy pledges, all of the statements. They'll be trawling back through statements of um, you know the parties have made over the whole of the last few period, but particularly waiting for the manifesto, waiting for any kind of detail. But they've kind of also got to get behind those policies, work out what the parties really intend to do, what's the difference between what they're trying to say to get elected and what actually might happen with the policy if they get into government. And that's where these uh, talks that they have with shadows are really important because that's the only opportunity they have to meet with shadows and talk to them uh, about what the policy is intended to do, uh, what might be involved in terms of implementation and get a real sense of, um, you know, what lies beyond just those sort of manifesto policy statements and and, and the like. And how much do you think opposition policies really um, suffer or or have to be changed when they come into contact, when when they get the benefit, if you like, of this civil I mean, this is the big challenge that opposition parties face and they don't necessarily consider enough how much room for manoeuvre they want to give themselves when they get into government because it's only then that once you start working through all the details of implementation, looking at what kind of capacity is actually in the system to be able to make the changes, how long they're going to take... um, unintended consequences, things that you've not sort of considered, and also the way in which policies fit together, because one of the biggest challenges in government is that you're not just making policy in isolation. It it relates to everything else that's going on in government. And there's a really interesting point on this with immigration, because uh, the the tens of thousands pledge that was in 2010 in the Conservative Manifesto Mm. was one of those, I think, quite quick uh, policy decisions that it wasn't quite clear how they would implement it. And then you saw the Home Office between 2010 and 2015 just constantly shifting around to trying new things, to try and get anywhere near this pledge that had been put forward that the Conservatives didn't want to roll back from. And so the implementation challenge of actually trying to get near that led to all sorts of bust-ups across government with other departments saying, well, we sign up to this when it's on the manifesto, but if you're telling me that... I'm going to struggle for jobs in this sector. Is it agriculture or the Treasury is worried about what it means for the economy? It's much, much harder than just um, yeah. sticking something on But it's also, page. it's a really big challenge that opposition parties face because on the one hand, you don't want to make like really detailed pledges that you'll get caught out on and have to do U-turns as soon as you're in government. But on the other hand, you get challenged by the media and everyone else if you're not showing that level of detail. So they have to kind of get a fine balancing act between something yeah. that's just kind yeah. of What's the an aspiration. Line? Would you say that they've got better at least addressing the question of cost? I think they have. If you look back to 1992 and the sort of, you know, Labour's tax bombshell and the accusation, and for Labour that was deeply felt, this idea that they'd fallen down on looking, you know, looking at the costings of all of, of, across their whole manifesto. Um, 
But possibly one weaker point is is whether they look at the legal consequences and constraints of this. I had an interesting conversation this this week with someone in government about you know how uh, European laws might constrain uh, what both parties wanted to do, but particularly uh, Labour that they might not have thought this I all through. I think that comes back down to the kind of resources that opposition has yeah. as well. Um, you know they don't often have access to the kind of detailed legal analysis that a serving government does, and that yeah. makes it really if, challenging for them. If they're lucky, they will get that in one or two areas. So again, if you go back to Labour in the run-up to the 97 election, they had the resources of the Constitution Unit who worked with them on uh, all of the devolution plans, thinking through drafting the legislation, referendums and all that kind of stuff. And that, just, just explain what the Constitution Unit so the is, Constitution it's not unit, part of government. No, it's not part of government. It's part of uh, UCL. Guy Robert Hazel, its first director and director for a long period of time, had previously worked as a civil servant. So he was really experienced at all of this. But they also they commissioned uh, lots of tables, lots of groups. They went, obviously, and talked to all the people that would be involved. So there was a lot of detailed work to make sure that they could announce it from the off, that they could get the referendums and the legislation through. And that's why devolution happened 98-99. Presumably it also matters um, when the election falls, because then there was a kind of five-year run-in and you knew when the election was likely to take place. Whereas this is a snap election, presumably constrains some of the planning yeah, that you though, can move on from your manifesto from in, say, Labour's point of view obviously that's one of the big issues is they've, they have their 2017 manifesto so it's how much have they developed those what have they put by you know left to one side which ones are they keeping which ones have they developed further and that's why there was this big controversy about the Conservatives trying to cost their 2017 manifesto mm-hmm. and say that that's what they were planning on spending this time let's take one really interesting example which is universal credit and as, as an example, I guess, of, of things that can go wrong, parties really agreed on this, didn't they? They yeah. thought it was it was a good yeah. idea. And then what happened? Universal was... credit was a really interesting example just in terms of actually a lot of it came from outside of the opposition party. So Centre for Social Justice under Ian Duncan Smith did a load of run, work in the run-up to the 2010 election. But obviously Ian Duncan Smith was then a surprise appointment. So civil servants hadn't prepared for this. They were suddenly scrabbling around to get copies of the report on their desks (laughs) um, in order to show willing to them. But as Emma knows well, it's then after that that things really got into difficulties. Exactly. And one of the challenges there was that you had a Secretary of State in Ian Duncan Smith who was passionately committed to universal credit and who had worked up an incredibly detailed 400-page blueprint outside of government for what it would look like. And let's just put a point out, there was at that point cross-party support for the idea of putting all kinds of benefits together and a single benefit saying it will sort out all kinds of inconsistencies and problems exactly. for people in doing paperwork and Look, so on. the challenge on universal credit has never been the idea of a single benefit or streamlined benefits. There's been a lot of agreement on that. The challenge has been implementation. How do you make that happen? What does that really look like in practice? And that was where universal credit started to fall down. Perhaps because so much detail had been worked up in opposition outside of government then the transition to you know inside government thinking about what this really looks like what does the IT system look like what other kind of policies are you relying on that hadn't been worked through and that started to spell trouble quite but it, quickly. It was also wasn't it the red lines that they um, formed around it in terms of like initially it was uh, what levels the benefits would be at and how they would sort of taper through but also the timelines for it and because Ian Duncan Smith was so wedded to it it you know he would, would almost be able to turn around to Cameron and say, look, I'm going to resign if you change this. Well, so it became that, a big... But civil servants were actually, we were told, quite nervous about yeah, exactly. coming to Ian Duncan Smith and saying, we think there are problems with this policy because he was so committed to it, was so passionate about it. Emma, just finally, if you've got one wish 
for how the opposition parties now would be uh, polishing their policies, what would you say? Um, I would say err towards openness. The opposition lacks resources and so finding ways to draw on others, whether that's think tanks, academia, even citizens themselves, is absolutely critical to getting it right. Brilliant, thanks. Well, we're a non-partisan think tank, so we're not going to be wading into the details of parties' policies, but there's plenty out there. Now, we're delighted to welcome back our very own Gavin Freegard for the latest instalment of Speed Data. Gavin, our brilliant comms team suggested I call you Prince of the Pie Chart, but actually you hate pie charts, don't you? You really hate them. Really I really mean, hate them. Yes, I really hate them. Yeah. But we like winding you up about them. Yeah. Yes, as I've noticed. Yeah. Well, that's that's why for everyone listening, um, why IFG charts, it's because of Gavin, that they are all coloured boxes and rectangles. Right, Gavin, you've got three minutes. What number has caught your eye this week? Well, given how um, much excitement and bewilderment our data sonification caused a few weeks ago, I've actually got a couple of sound charts for you today based on our performance tracker report. And that's our biggest ever report, which we're going to be coming to Indeed. about public services and what's happened to them. And at some point we'll turn it into a whole concerto. Um, oh, now, no. That is terrible. No. You knew it was coming. No, um, I did not. <laughs> um, so we're going to start with adult social care, um, one of the areas that we found was most under pressure. And what you're about to listen to is the percentage change in demand from local authorities for support. Uh, since 2015, we're first going to listen to over 65. And just, just a second, so by demand you mean people asking their local authority for help? Exactly. So this is over 65 since 2015. Thank you, Gavin. So you will have heard that there's a slight increase there. It's around 4%. Um, but I think this is the really interesting bit. Um, this is uh, 18 to 64-year-olds and the percentage change of them asking for support from local authorities. It's actually much higher. I think when we when we think about adult social care, we tend to think of old people's homes. When we're trying to illustrate um, slides at the institute, it's usually members of the performance tracker team and their grandparents. But actually, a ten percent rise for eighteen to sixty-four year olds versus a four percent rise for um, over sixty-fives. It's probably not the story that everybody expects. Because everyone ha expects the story that Britain is getting older, the population is getting older, and actually, what you're showing us, if that's the right word, uh, is, is that it's actually people in working age. And why, why is that happening? Again, the sort of the same advances in healthcare that we've seen leading to an older population has also meant that lots of people with what would have been much more limiting disabilities are actually living longer as well. And therefore, they're... So there's good news in there, but there but they're is. saying to their local authorities, look, I need help if I'm going to live a you know regular adult life. Precisely. And I think now two in five directors of social care and local authorities say that that is the biggest budgetary pressure that they're facing. Uh, Gavin, I just want to know, you've upgraded your sound there. What instrument are you using and, and wh when are you going to go full orchestra on us? <laughs> <laughs> At some point. Um, that's supposedly a theremin, um, but it does actually sound much more like a sort of hammer house of horror organ. It I does think. a little yeah, bit. It's got that clangers-like quality that I really was, was urging you to get. Uh, it was your first one, if you don't mind me saying, was a I've bit like a dirge. Uh, I've got chords. the pleasure of seeing the sheet music on his laptop screen. <laughs> I've never heard something At so some point, weird Gavin look will... so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> 
We'll get Emma is in charge of, of the IFG's single most controversial document, which is the internal seating plan. And so I think she'll have to build into this who's actually going to be sitting next to Gavin. <laughs> I thought you were suggest she sonified it. <laughs> Great. Gavin, have you got one more? I'm saying with some trepidation. I, I do indeed. So what you're about to hear is now um, something from Hospital's chapter of Performance Tracker, and it's A&E waiting times. So it's the percentage of people waiting four hours uh, to be seen. Um, now, you're going to hear a flourish, first of all. So the first flourish is giving you monthly data from August 2010 to July 2011. There'll be a brief pause, and then you'll get a series of other flourishes, which will take us all the way up to July 2019. Why is there a gap? Um, just for you to enjoy the full experience. <laughs> all right, you're not telling us something profound about the data. <coughs> <laughs> Is that instrument or animal? Chipmunks. Uh, yeah. You might say that government's dropped a clanger. Gavin, it does sound as if they've all got a bad cold, but can you just spell it out a bit? Because it doesn't sound as if it's getting much worse. Um, it, I'm well, puzzled. It, yeah. it, it is. And if you slow it down, you can um, you sort of get that effect uh, much more strongly. I think there are three patterns that you can take from that. One is that it has got worse. Um, so if you look back at 2010, the sort of percentage of people being seen within four hours was around 95%, which is the government target. By the time we get to this year, it's much more like 80%. So it has fallen quite a bit. But there are two other patterns that you can hear. I was going to say see. Um, you can see this from the performance tracker charts. Um, the first is that there is a seasonal variation. There is a winter crisis. The, obviously, the, the sort of people being seen does drop. But if you look at this year there hasn't been a recovery from last winter. So actually the numbers are quite similar now as they were last December, January. As my colleague Graham, who we're about to hear from, uh, put it, that's the sound of permanent winter. We haven't seen that recovery from sort of December or January um, and we've actually got a similar percentage of people being seen on time now. Well, pretty sobering, but we know there's all kinds of complicated factors in there, including how people use their doctors and so on, and whether they're pitching up at hospitals in lieu of that. We'll come on to that. Gavin, I guess I'm going to say thank you very much. <laughs> Speed data with Gavin. <laughs> What was it, Joe, you were saying about 14th of February? I was wondering if Gavin would host a speed data disco at the Institute for Government on the 14th of February, so put it in your diaries. Surely the Ministry of Sound would be the right place. Oh, no, you're right. Time to leave. It's going to go on and on. It's going to go on and on. (laughs) Gavin, thanks very much. Thank you. Now let's take a look at this week's big idea. This week it's about public services a decade after austerity kicked in. We've just released the IFG's biggest ever publication, our Performance Tracker. That's our look each year at how well or badly public services are working. We put it out with SIPFA, which is another institute that looks at public finances. It's based on a lot of analysis of government data, an awful lot. 244 pages, 66 graphs, 8 tables, a forest of footnotes. You can't say we don't know how to spoil you. One of its authors, Graham Atkins, who's been working on this for the whole year, is with us in the studio. Hi, Graham. Hello. Graham, you've reached the parts of government data that even the government sometimes doesn't seem to reach. What's your big idea for the week? So this week's big idea is about the performance of public services. We found that public services are more efficient, they're doing more for less, but they're going to struggle to carry on as they are. You could look at, for example, kind of local government. That's one area that's seen some particularly large spending cuts. 
on things like road maintenance and food safety and libraries. But one thing that's really remarkable is that despite these very, very deep spending cuts, if you look at, for example, uh, public satisfaction with local services, that's been broadly kind of flat. In fact, it's, it's only declined a bit since 2010, which really suggests that at least for the first few years of austerity, lots of public services were able to reduce spending while maintaining performance. And we did have people saying to us anecdotally, obviously, but saying in local government, look, the first year or two of cuts, that wasn't too bad. Even in some cases, that was easy. But after that, it got tougher, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the areas you can really see this in is a lot of the workforce data. And that's kind of often a good leading indicator that something's going wrong. So one area that's really kind of evident that pressures have built up is in the workforce. So you can see kind of rising uh, vacancy rates and turnover in social care. There's a large number of vacancies in the NHS. The, people, the, the service is looking for people to fill these jobs and they can't fill them. Yeah, absolutely. I think one one of the most remarkable statistics from Performance Tracker, I think, is actually that around four in ten care workers now leave their jobs each year, which is... That's an astonishingly high number. Yeah. Can we just take a step back, and for everyone's benefit, just tell us what it is that Performance Tracker does that other documents don't from the IFG or others, and in fact we say that the Treasury itself doesn't do? Absolutely. So it's kind of the key thing about Performance Tracker is connecting the money going in uh, to the the outputs coming out, that is the performance of public services. So wh- how much the government spends on these things and then how well they do. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the key things we've been pushing for through lots of editions of Performance Tracker is asking the government, and in particular the Treasury, the people making the spending decisions, to be looking at how well services are performing when they're deciding how much money to put in and what they actually expect them to deliver. Because the government doesn't exactly do it like that, does it? It has this annual famous sort of battle where departments try and compete for how much money they get, but not always looking at what comes out at the end. Absolutely. And, and, and that's really not kind of a sensible way to spend money. And I think one thing that's been really evident since the 2015 spending review is that lots of uh, government departments have had to put emergency money into public services. And that's really kind of a result of some quite predictable and foreseeable pressures that would have been more evident uh, had they been looking at the performance. What, what kind of areas time. are you talking about there? So social care is a very good example. At almost every fiscal event since the 2015 spending review, the government has found a way to give more money for, to social care. Just tell us what a fiscal event is, a very course, strange, yeah. strange <laughs> um, technical thing. Yeah. Yeah, your so fiscal events uh, being either budgets or spring statements, mm-hmm. so the two yearly events normally in yeah. March and October, where the yeah. government outlines its spending plans. Yeah. And, uh, and so social care is one worry. What are the other worries that have flashed up in this? I think the other, one of the other big worries is prisons. Uh, so prisons are in many ways less visible to most of the public, but really since 2013 there's been an astonishing rise uh, in the number of assaults, uh, prisoner assaults on other prisoners and prisoner assaults on staff, and standards in prisons have slipped really quite far. And on the chart that we put out, uh, um, it's flashing red for what we're concerned about it. But there are some bright spots, aren't there? So there's some areas that have been um, more shielded or found more efficiencies. I mean, schools, for example, uh, contrary to what you, a lot of the public debate you hear, that is comparatively... Um, protected, isn't it? Absolutely. So so schools is a good example of where, for the first few years of austerity, they were relatively protected. So real terms funding per pupil, uh, which is kind of a good metric of how much money is going into the school that's, system. That's after was, adjusting for inflation, but how much the government is spending per pupil in these schools? For about the first five years, depending on how you measure it, of course, fun, that kind of funding was flat. And it's only been in the last couple of years that it's dipped a bit. Um, general practice is another good example of where it's a public service that's actually managed to make some quite significant changes to the way it works. So 
greater number of telephone consultations, a greater number of consultations done online tend to be cheaper, and that has been quite a successful These innovations, we've been urging the government to make this kind of thing, and actually some of these, these quiet digital revolutions really really made a difference, it sounds like. But these things are very interrelated, aren't they? I'm thinking of ways where, you know, if people can't get to see their GP, then they turn up in A&E uh, to uh, see a doctor that way. And so you can't treat just one service on its own, can you? Hmm. No, and also, I mean, it's things like social care. Obviously, you know, part of the reason for the pressure there is that, you know, what's not happening elsewhere in the system. Um, and I guess it's a factor that parties need to consider as well of like where they focus their energies. And so even if, if they say, look, we're going to spend an awful lot of money on the NHS, if they yeah. haven't sold social care to some, yeah. to some then and that, that, that money may simply be going on keeping beds for people who actually exactly i mean well, one community. of the things that a lot of the parties are talking about is mental health support and you know there's a big push for spending there but that's just one component of it the police talk a lot about how a lot of what yeah. they deal with is mental health problems yeah. are any of these links show up in the data grid? can you see in performance tracker any combinations between different services applying pressure onto one another or is it actually very difficult to see from the data sets that are available So it is quite difficult, but there are some kind of interesting signs we can pick up on. So one one kind of coming back to other pressures on the police, we can look at the number of referrals uh, to children's social care departments. That's where kind of um, an individual or someone from a different public service will flag to a local authority if they have concerns about a child. The number of referrals coming from schools and coming from the police has really skyrocketed over the last kind of four years, which suggests that those other public services are having to pick up uh, some of the things that would have previously been done by social workers. But it, it can be quite hard to isolate what's going on, can't it? Because that could be that children are getting more troubled. It could be, as you said, that those services are picking up more of the burden. Or it could be that people are getting more alert to these problems and actually understanding more the need to refer children. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very tricky to kind of isolate out what is kind of a quote-unquote genuine increase in demand and what is kind of better identification um, but I think, you know, regardless of whether it is, you know, an increase in demand or better identification, it definitely is pressing, placing pressure on different public services. And we know also that, I mean, certainly inside government, they are trying to find different ways to look at data across services, look at the, how they work across different departments and work together to make sure that their data can be integrated so they can see the sort of knock-on effects of things going around the system because it's very easy for people to look at public services in isolation, look at departments in isolation and not realise that these are all connected but there's a lot of difficulties in there in terms of sharing data um, and in terms of like the way what it will actually end up telling you so if we take a step back and try and knit this together with the election campaign is this the picture we're looking at that after austerity kicked in um, public services did by and large get more efficient then things got really tight and the performance started going down and now we're calling we're telling uh, parties that uh, if they want to maintain standards they've got to put in a certain amount of money and if they want to improve things as they're saying they're going to put in a whole lot more. I think one notable thing is that after the 2019 spending round, the, the Johnson government, at least in kind of the public finance numbers it had been putting out, probably was spending roughly enough or planning to spend roughly so enough. In what, in what it's pledged, let's just emphasise this, in what it's pledged, it appears to be spending enough or promising to spend enough to maintain standards. That is to say to kind of to be able to provide the same standard of public service to the rising number of people um, in need of them. So to provide the same standard of schools to the rising number of pupils coming into primary So this is taking schools. account of the rising demand, if you like, in economics terms, the rising number of people needing these things. So it is putting enough for that, or it's promising to, but not enough to transform things. 
That's right. Although one kind of notable exception is adult social care, where uh, at least in the public finance numbers um, that the last Johnson government put out, it probably looks like there's about a £700 million shortfall just to keep up with the rising number of people eligible for adult social care over the next five years. Emma, is that what you're seeing when you look at these policies? Exactly. So I think, you know, the picture that you've outlined is right, Bronwyn, but there are some public services that have done badly over quite a long period of time and social care exactly as Graham says is the most obvious example um, you know spending has always um, been lower in social care than elsewhere in healthcare, and it's actually still now below 2010 levels so that's a service area that's done badly right across the place. And this is a picture of gloom in lots of ways though also of efficiencies but I just want to come back to the I mean the one or two bright spots in there because um, we shouldn't forget that some things have, have gone better and Graham I wondered if you could take us just a little bit more into the schools question what's been going on there as i said before the the real bright spot is that they weren't subjected to the same kind of uh financial pressures as other public services for the first couple of years and there is some evidence that kind of schools have been able to make efficiencies in the way they they buy goods like uh like energy and, and classroom resources uh again not to take us back too far into a grim picture but it, it really is evident now that at least in some secondary school um positions it's getting increasingly hard to recruit and retain teachers so there are pressures that now need to be addressed yeah we are hearing that very clearly in the election campaign from all sides Gavin Barwell has been a special advisor. He's worked at Conservative Central Office, he's been an MP, a minister, and most recently spent two years as Theresa May's Chief of Staff, where he worked alongside the former Prime Minister in an attempt to get her Brexit deal through Parliament. Throughout his career, he's either planned, run or fought general election campaigns. He spoke to Kath Haddon about the lessons he has learned along the way. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, so, Gavin Barwell, when was the last time you were not involved in a general election campaign? I think it would have been 1992 general election, the John Major, Neil Kinnock one, mm-hmm. where I just voted, like yeah. everybody else, but wasn't involved at all. Was still, I was at university at the time. And the other thing, obviously, that is a real feature of campaigns is uh, the people at the heart of them. And there's a lot of focus at the moment on the debates and who will be in them and so forth. Uh, Do you think we've moved much more towards a sort of presidential style where it's very focused around the party leader or, you know, is there more room for more of the party to get involved these days? Yeah, I think I think that probably has happened. I don't think it's just the TV debates that have done that. I think it's pro- you know maybe it's just you know me getting older, but it feels like a trend in my lifetime where the average voter's ability to name people sort of number two to seven in each political party feels to me less today than it was you know when I when I first got interested in politics. Now I think the debates uh, have their pluses. No, it does give voters a real opportunity to see the leaders together, but they also have their drawbacks as well. It does tend to suck oxygen out of the rest of the campaign. And, you know, Theresa was, uh, you know, I think with hindsight, thinks she should have she should have said earlier on last time that she was going to do it. But actually, privately, her view is the debates sort of stop a lot of other things that would go on in the campaign happening and they become the sort of sole focus of the campaign. So she's, she's if you like, sceptical of them but I think you know with hindsight clearly saw that the way it was handled in that last campaign didn't work to didn't work to her advantage. 
And the other feature of this campaign, obviously, campaigning in winter, first time in uh, many, many years. Uh, are you glad to be out of it? Do you think it's going to be a big factor? Well, I'm not I'm not completely out of it because I've been out on the streets helping uh, Mario, who's the guy who's standing to replace me for the Conservatives in the seat that I was in. So I'm getting freezing cold like everybody else. Um, look, I mean, it's, it's going to be a real challenge to the people actually at the front line that do the, do the sort of hard work at the coalface in these elections because... Yeah, it is not a usual time of year to have elections. Um, at the moment, when you talk to voters, they're still sort of determined to come out and vote. But if, if the weather was very bad on the day, I think it probably will have an effect on uh, on turnout. And anyone will tell you if, if you're campaigning in an area where, you know, there's a reasonable sort of fear of crime, getting people to open the door when it's dark uh, is not easy. And obviously the number of hour, hours of light in the day at this time of year is at a, pretty much as low as you can get. So it's not an ideal time. And you wrote a book, uh, How to Win a Marginal Seat, um, something you know still available for candidates out there today. Uh, do the rules still apply? Do you think Brexit, this particular scenario, has changed a lot of the fact, things you were talking about? So I don't think they change any of the rules, but it definitely has a shift in terms of like who the target voters are for the parties. I mean, like, I think we think of Brexit as a sort of peculiarly British phenomenon. And I don't really think... It, I think there is a wider trend across most Western democracies where you are seeing a change in the voting patterns of segments of the electorate with... you know, If I think back to the first election that you were talking to me about that I, that I voted in before I was involved, the dividing lines were basically economic. You know, Broadly speaking, the more affluent parts of the country tended to be conservative-supporting and the less affluent parts, uh, Labour-supporting. And what's happened is, you know, the dividing line is more cultural now and less economic. And that's not just a British. Brexit is our manifestation of that, maybe. But it's not just a British phenomenon. You're seeing it in other democracies as well. So you're seeing changes in where each of the parties are drawing their support. And I think that's interesting um, in two ways. First of all, it changes, you know, within if I was thinking of my old constituency, it changes where the Conservative votes might be coming from within that constituency, but it also has implications for the policies that the parties are standing on. Now, I think the if the Conservative Party's electoral coalition that it's hoping to build to win an election is going to have more seats in the Midlands and more in the North, it's going to need to be a Conservative Party that maybe is slightly less fiscally conservative, because you're going to have more voters who are going to want higher levels of spending on public services. And how much the parties have thought through the implications of what Brexit has done to where they can draw the support for their other policies is one of the really interesting things when we see the manifestos. And that's the end of this week's edition of Inside Briefing. Before we wrap up, a quick question, the routine one now for the panel. As ever, events will disrupt even the most carefully planned election grids. But what should we look out for next week? Um, well, one of the big things to look out for next week is potentially the Labour manifesto. So our opportunity to see what all that opposition policy making has actually led to. Um, so we should find out uh, more detailed plans on nationalisation, what they're saying on Brexit, perhaps even a bit of clarity on schools, one of the areas Labour has um, moved around on quite a lot. And the 32-hour week. They're clearly working more than 32 hours a week themselves. We think they're going to come out before the Tories. We think so, yeah. They're being agreed this weekend, so we might get a first sighting next week. Weekend working. Kath, what, what about you? I think it's interesting that we're going to be midway through the campaign next week, so getting a sense of what is the shape of this campaign, because we're still in the early stages, and you know, there's often going to be one or two defining issues that actually characterise a campaign. So will we have that sense of that by next week? Great. And Joe. 
I think trying to see how these electoral pacts develop, there's clearly quite a lot of unease in a number of the parties about the extent to which any agreements are done. We've seen the Liberal Democrats, part of the parties, some of the candidates saying we don't want to stand here against Labour because it damages the Remain prospect. So there's obviously some tension there. So the Remain side of things really trying to sort itself out in the next week. Exactly, but there's a lot more pressure going into the Brexit party as well for them to stand down in key Labour marginals. So I think it's not necessarily the end of the story with electoral pacts yet. Not even a pact there, possibly in the case of the Brexit party, more a surrender, you might say. Uh, you can use that term. I would never use surrender in around Brexit you, context. <laughs> you couldn't possibly comment. And that's it this week from me, Bronwyn Maddox, an inside briefing with the Institute for Government. You can find us every weekend on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and all your favourite podcast platforms. Please do subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We were number one in the government section for a day last week, so thanks to you all, the word is spreading. You can find out more about everything we've discussed today and much more by following the IFG on Twitter, we're all there, or just visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Please tweet us your questions on what we've talked about today or the general election, and do send feedback about how Gavin can get a record deal. (laughs) See you next week when we return for the next episode of Inside Briefing.